You're listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. My name is Jason Steinhauer. My name is Paul Steggy. In this podcast miniseries, we'll be taking a look at key issues facing our world today and showing that to better understand them, we have to look back to 1968. A closer look at that iconic year can help us think through these issues in new ways and perhaps get us one step closer to finding solutions. At the time of this recording, the United States is engaged in its longest-running continual military conflict. American soldiers have been on duty in Afghanistan since fall 2001, and 17 years later, there is no foreseeable end in sight. Previously, the longest-running U.S. military conflict was the Vietnam War, and 1968 was a pivotal year in the war in Vietnam. Prior to 1968, there had been a narrative crafted by President Lyndon Johnson and the U.S. military about the war. The strategy was succeeding. Progress was being made. 1968 changed that, and it began that January with the Tet Offensive. Historian Lien Hang Nguyen has written about the Vietnamese perspective on the war. Testing one, two, three. She joined us from New York via webcam. My name is Lien Hang Ti Nguyen, and I'm the Dorothy Borg Associate Professor in the History of the United States and East Asia at Columbia University. She has a forthcoming book on the Tet Offensive. The 68 attacks she has written were conceived in 1963 and plotted in 1967. One of the very interesting things about the decision-making for the military year 1968 was that it intersected with these political debates and inter-party factionalization in Hanoi throughout the course of 1967. North Vietnamese leaders could not agree on how to score the decisive victory they sought. If the communist troops attacked all of the cities and towns across South Vietnam, this held the power to incite a mass insurrection that would lead to the toppling of the Saigon regime. On the other side, you had Ho Chi Minh and General Bogling Zap, who believed that communist forces were not ready to undertake an offensive of this ambitious nature, that whatever offensive would take place in 1968 should start in the countryside and in the lesser populated areas and build up to the cities. So you had two sets of leaders who believed two very different things. And in the summer of 1967, they couldn't agree. The final plan called for surprise attacks on 26 provincial capitals, five autonomous cities, and 64 district capitals in the South. We begin during the Lunar New Year, when forces were observing a ceasefire around the Tet holiday. What is important to remember was because North Vietnamese leaders couldn't agree on the form or the strategy to implement, they waited to the proverbial last minute to decide on D-Day. So the decision to launch the attacks during the Tet truce, the Lunar New Year holiday truce, which was the end of January, was made only in late December to mid-January. Attacks across South Vietnam would cause civilians to rise up, overthrow the South Vietnamese government, and turn back the American invaders. Because there was the Tet Truce, because the Americans and the South Vietnamese believed that no attacks would take place during the Tet holidays, the North Vietnamese wanted to use that to their advantage. The problem was because there was all of this infighting in terms of the Tet strategy to liberation, uh, all of that almost was lost. Back in the U.S., the attacks had a large effect on President Johnson's administration. The mood in Washington soured as media reports chronicled the fighting. The United States did not appear to be winning the war or even making progress, and more and more soldiers were dying. 
Author and journalist Mark Bowden has written about how President Johnson responded. He joined us by telephone. My name is Mark Bowden. You might recognize him as the author of Black Hawk Down, which became a major motion picture. He has a new book on 1968. The book I wrote is called Way 1968. Bowden has a personal connection to the story. My connection was that as a young high school student, I was 16 at the time this battle took place. I had pitched arguments at the dinner table with my father about the war. He remembers the war's effects on those back at home. At the time, attitudes were split sharply, and it got worse. Those of us who were against the war represented a, um, a small but growing portion of the community. During the fierce fighting in early 1968, President Johnson urged General William Westmoreland to hold daily sessions with reporters while the Tet fighting continued. The top leadership of the country was already very much aware that the war was not going well and that the chances of the United States prevailing in Vietnam were small. And yet, they continued to sell the public on the idea that we were very near victory. General William Westmoreland, who was the top commander of American forces in Vietnam, came back to the United States in November of 1967 and gave a speech at the National Press Club where he all but predicted that the war was going to end in the following year. Pressure on Johnson from Congress was building. Congressional hearings had begun questioning the legal basis for the U.S. involvement in the war. And casualties continued to mount. Hours before daylight on January 31st, 1968, nearly 10,000 North Vietnamese Army and Viet Cong troops overran the city of Hue. Have you been reading anything in the paper about Hue? It is supposed to be big news in the States. Well, that's where I am. It is supposed to be some of the worst fighting that has been fought in the war. If it isn't, it will be plenty for me. I can't really say how bad it has been. We've lost a hell of a lot of people. This house-to-house fighting is a son of a bitch. I've never been so scared in all of my life. That was a portion of a letter by Art Marcotti to his sister Kathy in Michigan, written from Vietnam, 1968. Well, Hue is the, uh, was then the third largest city in South Vietnam, and it was the ancient capital of the unified country and the kind of cultural and, and religious and educational center. And as such, it had been sort of off limits during the war. It had a population of about 140,000 people. The fighting showed no sign of letting up. Reports in the press said the war had lost its purpose and moral authority. On March 8, 1968, Life magazine published a color photo spread from the Battle of Way, entitled, The Battle That Regained and Ruined Way. It showed Marines squatting amid bombed out trees and houses. The city was completely destroyed. Marines on hands and knees, gasping for air. A Marine lying amid a pile of rubble, bullet wound in his leg. A photo caption read, more than anything else in Vietnam thus far, the fate of Hue demonstrated the sickening irony into which the war has fallen, the destruction of the very things that the U.S. is there to save. Well, the immediate consequences of the, of the battle in Hue itself were that 80% of the city was destroyed. There were more than 10,000 people killed in the Battle of Hue. Only 
250, 260 of those were American soldiers, but there were thousands of American Marines and soldiers who were wounded and evacuated during the battle. Uh, enemy troops, uh, Viet Cong, North Vietnamese, uh, suffered far more greatly. There were thousands killed and many more thousands wounded. For the North Vietnamese, the Tet Offensive had mixed results. Its primary objective had been to overthrow the government in the South. That didn't happen. From her research, Nguyen makes clear that Vietnamese military leaders intended to stoke an uprising. By year's end, the North Vietnamese reported they had killed 630,000 enemy troops and shot down 557 planes. But the uprising never came. It actually had the opposite effect. In the months that followed, the Saigon regime used the offensive to strengthen its grip on power. It's possible that a secondary goal of the offensive could have been to cut the country of South Vietnam in half. That didn't happen either. But a third goal, to strike a psychological blow to the U.S. during an election year, that was achieved. In many ways, the Tet Offensive was a major turning point in the Vietnam War. In other ways, it was not. So, yes, the North Vietnamese was able to deliver a huge political and psychological blow to the U.S. in a very important election year. Uh, but if we look at LBJ's actions uh, right after he announces that he will not run for re-election uh, at the end of March of 1968, he actually does sort of, uh, he doesn't throw in the towel. You know, he doesn't give Westmoreland the 206,000 troops that they wanted, but he did increase uh, the number of American troops in country, another 20,000. He also, you know, although he ended the bombing north of the 20th parallel, he bombed harder in the areas that he was able to bomb. Yes, the United States agreed to engage in preliminary peace talks in Paris, but in many ways, the, the fighting that took place from mid-1968 to mid-1969 was much more ferocious than what came beforehand. So in many ways, the war was not de-Americanized. It was de-Americanization, or what became known as Vietnamization, wasn't set in stone after the Tet Offensive. In the United States, the attacks of 68 had a sizable political effect. They enhanced a growing mistrust in the government that leaders had not been honest about the reasons for entering the war or the war's progress. Media reports, battlefield losses, and congressional hearings all combined to make re-election of Johnson seem impossible and created a tense mood in the country. That tension would grow deeper in the months and years ahead. Wynne argues that the North Vietnamese didn't see Tet as a victory until after 1975 and the end of the war. But it bought all sides more time. It helped bring new leadership to the White House, a president in South Vietnam with no domestic challengers, and it led the North Vietnamese to clamp down on domestic dissent. Now, as we scripted this episode, you, Paul, noted that this had a slightly different flavor than our first episode. It has much less of a clear connection to 2018. So we asked Hang Nguyen and Mark Bowden how Vietnam 68 connects with 2018. One of the major questions that Americans have faced has been how to act in the world. The decision of when and where and how the United States should intervene in other parts of the world to try to influence events, whether to do that diplomatically or through economic 
pressures or uh, directly with a military involvement has led us to some tremendous accomplishments, uh, but also tremendous failures and, and great loss of life. Uh, so I think that these are deep moral and uh, ethical, political uh, questions that we haven't you know, finished wrestling with in this country. And, and events like Vietnam or the Battle of Hue are uh, very, very useful, I think, in examining, you know, what we can and can't accomplish. And as for when... So one of the greatest legacies of the Tet Offensive was in many ways its intended and unintended consequences. If we could bring General Lezuan back to life and sit him down and talk to him about the legacy of his general offensive general uprising, we could ask him, so you never were able to foment this general insurrection that toppled the Saigon regime, but you were able to take down President Lyndon Baines Johnson and have him make a decision not to run for re-election. So in that sense, to end Democratic Party stronghold over the White House. Moreover, if you look at sort of the social protests, um, the sociopolitical movements that took place worldwide in 1968, there was no general insurrection in Saigon, but you could make the argument that there were mass insurrections uh, in the streets and cities and campuses across the United States of America. My very own Columbia University witnessed the large-scale protests in April of 1968, um, what you had happened, of course, in Paris, London, uh, Berlin, Rome, uh, Tokyo, Mexico City were, in fact, what one can argue, general insurrection that wasn't just in response to what was happening in Vietnam or the Tet Offensive, but one has to accept the Tet Offensive uh, was a, a major catalyst in these social protest movements worldwide. So instead of fomenting this small insurrection in South Vietnam, one can argue that Lezon was able to foment what was a global insurrection. 1968 made visible the costs and consequences of an endless war in ways that provoked social, cultural, and political responses around the world. There was already disillusionment about the war before 1968, but American leaders lying to the public, that only made it worse. North Vietnamese leaders had also entered 1968 with false expectations. They believed that a decisive victory was near, but the war would continue, stalemated for another seven years. The way political and military leaders communicate the truth, or don't, certainly resonates today in an era of fake news, misinformation, political spin, and propaganda. Government's unwillingness to acknowledge the truth on the ground has consequences, and those consequences have real human costs. There were just these very ugly and intense political struggles that took place um, over the course of 1967, 68, 69. The people paid for these political battles that took place in, in Hanoi, Saigon, and Washington, D.C. You've been listening to 1968 in hindsight a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. 1968 in Hindsight is produced by the LePage Center for History in the Public Interest at Villanova University. For more information on the sources used in this episode or any of our previous episodes, please visit our website, lepage.villanova.edu. Special thanks to our undergraduate fellow, Claire Hoffman, for her reading of the letter by Art Arcadi. Thanks for listening.